Facebook Marketplace, right? What a dumpster fire. <laughs> we use this Facebook Marketplace here. I say that, and we use it, I use it all the time. Yeah, right? Um, I, use, I use Facebook Marketplace. We use it all the time now. We have kids, so um, we, we, um, we need kids' stuff that they grow out of super quick. So when we buy shoes, we don't buy full-price shoes, right? Facebook Marketplace has kids' shoes that have been worn twice. Uh, and then we take our, the shoes and put them up on Facebook Marketplace for the same price we bought them. It's a great system. Um, Facebook Marketplace is, uh, is an amazing place. It can also be a dumpster fire. Do you guys get people asking you to negotiate with yourself on Facebook Marketplace? Every time. You put up, a, you put up something for a price. It's like 75 bucks, And then they go, is this still available? And you go, yeah, it is. And then they go, what's your lowest price? 75 bucks? I don't know. I'm not gonna, I literally have a response now. I say, I'm not going to negotiate with myself. That would be absurd, right? Why would I like, talk to myself, to talk myself down from the original price? That seems ridiculous, right? I let people negotiate. I try to be friendly, but also direct and stern because, you know, people are trying to take advantage of you out here, especially on Facebook Marketplace. If you ever try to sell a car on Facebook Marketplace... Oh my gosh, <laughs> it's a wild experience, but I'll do it again because I'm a glutton for punishment. Uh, I recently found myself selling something that uh, other churches would benefit from. I won't tell you what that is because you'll get mad at me if I told you, but um, I would put something up for sale that another church would actually um, use. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> no, they won't use those. Um, and, uh, and so a bunch, I got a bunch of hits on this thing, and it was mostly Christians, like mostly pastors of churches who were, who were responding, is this available? And most of the responses went nowhere. But uh, one particular response, I thought, God, I'm like, this person's going to buy this thing, right? And it's something I really wanted to be able to sell, and I needed to sell in order to get something else. So, so I was willing to negotiate with this person, uh, like down to almost half of what I posted. I posted at a number that I knew I'll take half, Right. So uh, I'm talking to this person, we're negotiating back and forth, and we're also really friendly, right? And they tell me they're a pastor, it's for a church, so we get, like, really fun, right? Like, we're cheeky with one another, making fun of stuff, being, like, fun on Facebook Marketplace. And then I thought, this person might become a friend of mine, right? I thought, like, this person could be someone I would hang out with, right, based on how our interaction was going, because we were just kind of being fun. It's like, okay, the, the sale of the thing was secondary to us being local pastors who, you know, are, are friends and understand each other. Anyway, he ended up wanting a price that was $3 cheaper than I was willing to go, right? You know how this went, right? And I had already come down a lot. I had come down a lot, and I had an ethical reason to keep the price I had posted. Like, I, there was, I had sold some of these things in the past for a price to another church, and I thought, okay, I sh the lowest I'll go is the same amount that I sold it to this other guy. And, uh, and he said, no, I want... $3 off of that because I want you to deliver it for me. I said, no, I'm not going to deliver it for you and I'm not going to give you $3 off. We're not friends. <laughs> like, we're, we're, that ship sailed quick, right? Like, we're, you know, things turn really, really fast. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we're no longer cheeky or friendly or generous to one another after that. We move on, I guess. 
Uh, have you ever had a friend or a family member who you thought you mattered to only to find out that they're really in it for something they're getting from you? Have you ever had that? You've had that, haven't you? Probably a lot. How did that feel? Like you thought, oh, this person loves me, wants to be friends with me, cares about me. They're in my own family, of course. Like none of this stuff matters. What they're about is me. And then you find out, hmm, seems as though they're about something else. In the second that they lost that benefit, your relationship changed quite a bit. You've had that, haven't you? And you're probably thinking of names right now. In the name of introspection, though, because this is church, and church is not the place we come to talk about other people's problems. Church is the place we come to have a mirror reflect back on us. So why don't you ask yourself the question, have you ever found yourself holding on to a relationship just for what you got out of it? Do you have a relationship in your life right now that you know you're holding on to it because you're hoping you're getting something out of it. You're either getting something out of it and you don't want to lose that or you have a hope of getting something out of it. I don't want to suggest inheritance, but <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, you're all thinking it. You're all thinking, man, I got I to gotta pick up the phone and call mom and dad, right? We're all thinking it. Is there other things? Let me ask you a different way. Are there some people who we claim to love, but our relationship is really just a mutually beneficial transaction. There's somebody who you would say, oh no, I love that person. But really the nature of your relationship is a mutually beneficial reaction, or um, transaction. And then the question is, well, how do you know if that's the truth? How do you know if your relationship is real and your love is real, or it's just a mutually beneficial transaction between two people? What are the signs that that's the case? Today's story has a little bit of that tone in the story, and I think one of the questions we can ask ourselves while reading the story is that very question, if we're going to be honest with ourselves. Today we're looking in uh, Acts chapter 16. Like Mrs. Mary told us we are, uh, we are following up the story of Lydia. Last week we talked about Lydia. And it's important that we know we're following up this because um, like we said last week and, and a bunch of weeks, uh, Luke is very intentional about what he puts and where he puts it. And so we're, we're supposed to read this story today in light of what we heard last week about Lydia. For those who weren't with us last week, Lydia was, uh, was a very wealthy woman who lived in Philippi. Paul and his team of missionaries prayed, God, where do we want to go? And God told them where to go. So they went there. They met this woman, Lydia, they told Lydia about Jesus. She said, yeah, Jesus is the Lord and gave her life to Jesus. And then Lydia, she became like a primary funder and leader in the missional movement of the local church in the first century, particularly in Philippi. We said about her, she was very wealthy. She was a dealer in purple cloth. That's how we know she was extremely wealthy. And, and then Paul wrote a letter to the Philippians saying, thank you guys for your generosity. And all we can think about is that's probably Lydia he's talking about. Lydia's the one who funded this. So we take this very wealthy woman who Paul went to, not because he knew she was there, not because he meant to get anything out of her. He didn't know anything, any of this about her. They reached her. She turned around and became a very generous person, right? The next story, this is where we're at, like really the next story in the narrative is, uh, is what we're reading today. So that's Acts 16, 16 to 18. 
And we're going to read it together. Now, as we were going to the place of prayer, this is um, Paul and, and, the, and the missionaries. They're heading somewhere again on the Sabbath. Last week we talked about on the Sabbath, what they would do is they'd go find where godly people are or, or maybe Jews were or maybe Christians were and, and minister to them, right? So that's where they're going. It's another place. That they're looking for a place of prayer on the, prayer on the Sabbath. And, they, and so they're going. And they, it says, a slave girl met us who had a spirit that enabled her to foretell the future by supernatural means. She brought her owners a great profit by fortune-telling. She followed behind Paul and us and kept crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. She continued to do this for many days. There's a couple notes about the situation that may not be obvious on first reading. Like I said, Paul and his team, they're on, a, uh, they're on the Sabbath looking for people to minister to again. They encounter this woman. She's a slave, but it says she's demonically oppressed. And, and if you understand uh, the Greek, you would understand that she's demonically oppressed by uh, what would be considered the Python spirit. The Python in uh, Roman culture in Philippi was a symbol uh, that was famous in the, Delph- uh, the Delphic Oracle, which represented a particular god there, and that particular god was believed to be a god who would offer up predictions for future events. So you would go to the temple, you would make sacrifices, you would give money, you would see this, this woman, this kind of woman, she would predict the future by the power of the demonic forces that were within her, and, um, and that was the cycle of events, and it was all, you know, it was... It was God, uh, their God, their understanding of God, who was, um, who was telling them what would be next. Now, we understand that this is, this is a demonic thing. It's a pagan thing. So, so it's a pagan God worshipped at a pagan temple. And at first glance, this is interesting, at first glance, when you read, these men are servants of the Most High God who are proclaiming to you the way of salvation, it sounds like the slave woman, it sounds like she's buying what they're selling, Right? It sounds like she's becoming a follower of Jesus, right? It sounds like she's listening to what Paul and his missionary team were preaching. So when you first read it, you're like, oh, she's, she's getting it, right? She's, and Mary said, Mary said, she was saying the right things. After a little bit of a deeper reading, you would understand that God most high for her, as a Roman citizen in Philippi, did not mean God of Abraham, right? Didn't mean Jesus, it meant some other god. It meant uh, the, 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 the top of the hierarchy in the Roman pantheon in, in Philippi. So we're talking not about God, even though it sounds like God most high. She's referring to something totally different than the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right? And then when it comes to salvation, we hear salvation. What do you hear when you hear salvation? You, if you grew up in church in the West, you probably hear uh, saved from the consequences of your sin for eternity, i.e., you don't go to hell when you die. Is that true? Is that what you hear when you hear salvation? Sorry, this is crazy. I need to buy a new one of these on Facebook Marketplace. <laughs> somebody, somebody find us a new one. I can't handle it anymore. What she would have understood by saying what she was saying, um, now I'm going to find my spot. She would have understood that um, salvation was a means to health, prosperity, and avoidance of disaster. So if you hear salvation from a pagan person in the first century, they're talking about avoid anything bad and get all the good in life, health, prosperity. So when she's saying, these men are proclaiming God most high and, and they're the key to salvation, what she's actually doing is saying, 
we're saying the same thing. So come on over here, and you're going to get that salvation that you want. That salvation that you want is health, prosperity, the avoidance of disaster. And the God that they're referring to is the same God. You can understand why Paul would start to get a little bit annoyed. So she's piggybacking off of their missionary work and their message. And her primary purpose is to turn people towards the pagan temple. It's not to turn towards people towards Jesus. And they would come and they would give her lots of money to predict um, their future. I, she was a charlatan. But worse than a charlatan in the scripture, she was a charlatan that was piggybacking off the name of Jesus. And uh, there's not a whole lot of things that I think would annoy Paul more than somebody who was a charlatan in the name of Jesus. You can imagine why. So where's this going? Let's read verse 18. Paul became greatly annoyed and turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus, come out of her. And it came out of her at once. I love the language that Paul, um, Luke uses here to describe Paul. He didn't say he became angered, right? Didn't say he became frustrated, which we can imagine he did. The annoyance, right? She was doing this for days and you can picture Paul just like being disgusted with her. Like, oh, just shut up, right? Like, just stop. Come out of here, right? He's just annoyed at how obnoxious it was and, um, well, and how manipulative it would have been. And so that's what happened. The demon came out of her according to the scriptures. And then we see in verse 19, but when her owners saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. When they had brought them before the magistrates, they said, these men, they're throwing our city into confusion. They're Jews and they're advocating customs that aren't lawful to us to accept or to practice since we are Romans. So one minute, Paul and his guys are superheroes, right? These are preaching God most high, salvation for all. And the next minute, they stopped turning a prophet for them. They became public enemy number one. Things turned pretty nasty, right? Their explanation for the unlawful arrest was that they're throwing our city into confusion. You ever heard that explanation before? What a non-explanation, right? What, what are they doing wrong? I don't know. They're creating confusion, What's the confusion? I don't know. They're telling us to do things that aren't lawful. Really? Are they not lawful? I don't know. But then what they do is they actually drum up a crowd. And you've seen this before, and you've probably been a part of it, right? Somebody who's really loud and passionate and confident comes and says, these people, they're bad people. And you're like, oh, are they bad people? You don't know any better. So you're like, yeah, maybe they are. And then enough people go, yeah, they're horrible people. And then you've got this massive mob crowd around Paul and the missionaries, and uh, they start to attack them, is what it says. And so in verse 22, it says, The crowd joined in the attack against them, and the magistrates, they tore the clothes off Paul and Silas, and they ordered them to be beaten with rods. After they had beaten them severely, they threw them into prison and commanded the jailer to guard them securely. Receiving such orders, he threw them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. Are there some people who we claim to love, but our relationship is really just a mutually beneficial transaction? Is there some people who we claim to love, but our relationship with them is really just a mutually beneficial reaction? And how do we know? How do we know that that's the case, or at least partially the case? What are some of the evidences of that? What are the signs of that? 
I'm going to pause here for a second and let you in on a secret with pastors. I hope I don't expose Ian too much here. I have a lot of friends uh, who aren't church-going people who ask me uh, sometimes, how did pastors get paid, right? They don't know any better, so they're like, what? how is this a job for you? Particularly in the last season of my life, when I was in between workplaces, they were wondering, how does this even work? And I remember one asking me recently, who happens to be a school teacher, he said, how do you get paid? And so I said, how do you get paid, school teacher? (laughs) It was actually an interesting conversation, and it led to an interesting moment of realization. I said, "Um, do you realize how you get paid? They said, well, I I do a job, and I get paid a paycheck. Where does that paycheck come from? It comes from the school board. Where does the school board get their money from? Uh, I guess they get it from the government. Oh, where does the government get their money from? Oh, I guess that comes from me, right? I guess it comes from us. They had this realization that they weren't paid by the school board to do a job. They were paid by the public to do the job. Then I asked them the question, well, how does the government guarantee they get their money to pay you? And they were like, I don't know, but people just volunteer it. (laughs) And I said, oh, you voluntarily pay your taxes? Yeah, I do them every year. Have you ever tried to not pay your taxes? Bob's in the room. He could tell us what happens, right? What happens if we don't pay our taxes? It was this moment of realization where they were like, oh, so so if you don't pay your taxes, you go to jail. So I have a job that pays me to do a service, and the way I get paid from that is that you're threatened to go to jail if you don't give up your money, right? Now, it's cynical, but that's the truth, right? Like, that's the truth. Otherwise, we would probably, some of us would freely choose not to pay our taxes, or all of them, right? right? We wouldn't pay all of them. We'd be like, ah, I feel like this this month, or that this month, right? We don't really have that choice, do we? It's not quite the same with pastors, or at least it shouldn't be. Ian is, you're not threatening anybody here, are you? Okay. I don't know what, I don't know what you do. Bob's got a gun on his waist, right? He's... Um, here's the wrestling for pastors, and I can speak to it um, honestly because it's, it's where I'm at in my life, and, uh, and it, it's a question that comes to, to my mind a lot. We feel called to serve at a level that requires us to not pursue a marketplace or governmental job, which means that the basis of our livelihood isn't uh, necessarily offering a service for people at a set price. It's not offering a product or a good that we can sell, and it's not um, the government coming to our you know, house with guns forcing, forcing anybody to pay up, right? It's a charity. And, uh, and with charities, people freely give to them or, or freely don't. The basis of our presumably modest and hopefully modest livelihood is free and generous giving of people who believe in our calling and want to empower and support the work that we're doing. That's the basis. That's how I feed my family. That's how Ian has fed his family. It's on that basis. Now, there is the element of tithe. I don't know if you guys grew up, some of you grew up in church, and you're like, we don't have a choice but to give. God will judge us if we don't and condemn us. Uh, We're not going to speak to the truthfulness of that, but you're not going to be thrown in jail if you don't tithe, for example, right? So, So it really is something that you have to choose to do out of obedience if that's something God's called you to do. The truth is here at Southside, and I promise this to you, you could come to Southside for 10 years, And you could take advantage of every service that's offered at Southside. 
You could take uh, advantage of the kids' services. You could drop your kids off for babysitting if you want on Sundays. And, and no one's going to ask you for money necessarily or force you to do it. You can, you can take advantage of the youth stuff that we're doing. You can take advantage of being here in the space and the, f- 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 uh, the, the meals that we're serving. Uh, everything that we do here, you can show up and, and it's for you and it's for everyone in this community and not a single person will ever walk through that door and be asked to show what they gave in order for us to do this, right? That no one's going to be charged anything. We might charge for an event that we have to, like hiking or whatever, but it's not, it's, it's a different basis, right? Does that make sense? So that's the promise. And as long as I'm here, that's going to be the truth, right? We're never, you're, you're never going to be expected anything. You, um, you are free here. And I, as a pastor, I'm called to love you unconditionally. Like my job and my responsibility and my calling is to love you unconditionally. A lot of pastors don't know what people give because we, we don't want to know because we love you the same regardless. There's no like higher tax bracket here, right? You are equal in, 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 in our eyes and we're called to treat you as equals. In my opinion, there are uh, very few things that are farther from the heart of God than a Christian leader whose love for you is contingent on what you have to offer them. There's very few things in my heart that I believe are further from the heart of God than, than that. There's a reality that you all offer a lot to each other and to me just by being here in your presence, right? So there is a mutually beneficial relationship that exists here, but the love of a pastor and the service of a pastor is never supposed to be contingent on that or on, i.e., the security of a paycheck. But as a Christian leader, it's not easy to do this. I'm telling you the truth. It's not easy always to do this. Christian leaders are humans, right? And they struggle with the same fears that you struggle with. We're called to trust God with our provision. That's what we're called to do so that we can truly treat everybody in the community equally and unconditionally. Because our model, our model is a God who treats us with unconditional love. There's no conditions to our love from God. He wants something in return from us, but there's no condition that's placed on it. Here's the other reality. That's a pastor. I can only speak from my experience and where I'm at. Did you know that as Christians in the marketplace or in the not-for-profit sector or working in government, did you know that you're actually called to the same standard? Like, do you think you're called to the same standard? Do you know that you're called to the same standard? There's a standard that we're all trying to strive towards, and that is the standard. The standard is we trust God with what we have. We trust God with our provision, and we don't treat people differently based on whether or not we benefit from our transactions with them. Now, there's business to be run, and there's things to do, and if you own a business, you need to take care of your clients, right? And you're not taking care of everybody for the sake of taking care of everybody. But your clients, the people you work with, the people you work for, the people who work for you, people you're in relationship with, you are called to treat equally, regardless of what you're getting from them. So the question is, have we ever found ourselves holding on to a relationship for what we got out of it? How do the, question, the answer to the question of whether or not that's the nature of a relationship might be how do we respond when we no longer gain that benefit from them? 
Have you had a business deal with somebody? And you were real nice to them, weren't you? You, you set a deal on Facebook Marketplace, right? Everything was cool. You're like, this guy's a cool dude. We're cool dudes. We're going to be friends. And then, oh man, that went sour. How do you feel about them? Do you treat them as though they're loved by God equally as they were when you had a good business deal going with them? Same is true in your relationships and your family. How do you treat them if you don't get the benefit anymore? If you were taken out of your parents' will, what would be the nature of your relationship with them? That's a gut check if I've ever felt one. Do we love people because they're image bearers of God regardless of what they have to offer us? This morning, let the grace of God and the example of Jesus Christ be lifting some of that weight hopefully you're feeling if you're honest with yourself this morning. The incredible truth of the gospel is that God's love for you is without condition. God benefits from a relationship with you. Did you know that? Did you know that what Mike was saying this morning? God is blessed by that. God is pleased by that. God wants more of that. It brings joy to God when we worship him. He benefits from our worship, but his love for us and his grace is not contingent on the songs we sang this morning. That is our example. And so our security, our security in being loved is not based on a benefit, a mutual benefit, mutually beneficial relationship. Our security of knowing who we are and knowing that we're loved and trusting our entire life and future in the hands of God is based in a relationship with someone who doesn't matter what you have to offer. Their love's going to be the same. And our calling as Christians is to live out that love that is an example to the world around us. We live with the same security to those around us. That's what I learned from this story this morning. The rest of the story is pretty cool, too. We're going to look at that. I'm going to talk about the jailer here just for a minute. So Paul and Silas, they're in jail, like Mrs. Mary told us. They're singing praises to God, and the jailer, of course, he can hear them. He's right next door to them. And out of nowhere, this crazy earthquake happens. And the jail doors, they shoot open, and the chains... The chains were lodged into the stone, right, in the wall, and the earthquake shook it up and dislodged the chains. So now they're actually free. They could have run away. The jailer assumed they would have, which is what a sane person would have done, right? You just got beaten and thrown in jail unjustly. You prayed, and God sent an earthquake. You're like, okay, this is obviously from God, right? This is a gift. He wants me to be free to go do the work that I'm called to. So you take off. It's not what they did. Mary was telling us about the jailer. He was, so re- he was ready to take his own life. At first glance, that seems extreme, right? I don't know about you, but if like, something crazy happened like that, I wouldn't be like, oh gosh, I should just take my own life. But the reality was for the jailer, that was going to be more merciful than how the Romans were going to treat him. They were actually, if, if a jailer let a guy go free or was responsible for it, it was a, not just death, but it was a lot of torture and then death. That was the nature of the system that they were in, right? So for him, it was going to be more merciful to him to just take his own life. That's the point he was at. That's where we pick up in verse 28. It says, but Paul called out loudly, don't harm yourself, for we're all here. Calling for the lights, the jailer rushed in, and he fell down, trembling at the feet of Paul and Silas. Then he brought them outside and asked, sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, 
believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And then they spoke the word of the Lord to him, along with all those who were in his house. At that hour, the night, uh, that hour of the night, he took them and washed their wounds. Then he and all his family were baptized right away. The jailer brought them into his house, set food before them, and he rejoiced greatly, uh, greatly that he had come to the house of God together with the entire household. Do you notice a pattern from Lydia's story? What happened when Lydia and her household came to know the Lord? Come on over, guys. Let's hang out and eat together. I'm going to take care of you. Uh, there's something that the Holy Spirit should be doing in us. It's called hospitality when we come to embrace Jesus as our Lord. But that's a side note. Tom Wright, he's got a better um, translation here for the jailer's question. See the highlighted part? Sirs, what's well, sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, what do you hear? You probably hear, what must I do to escape hell for the eternity to be saved from the consequences of my sin, right? That's what we hear because that's how we're trained here. That's not actually what's going on here. A, a Philippian jailer would have had no concept of the same heaven and hell that you and I have as 21st century Western Christians. So that's not what he's thinking here. Uh, Tom Wright, he actually, his translation is a more word-for-word translation based on the context, and it's, gentlemen, will you please tell me how I can get out of this mess? Right? This guy's in a mess. The door's open on his watch, and he's going to be tortured and murdered if he doesn't just kill himself. And they say, no, no, man, we didn't run away. We're still here. You're good. He's like, guys, I don't know what to do. I'm in a mess right now. What does it look like for my life to be saved? I need to be saved because I'm terrified. And their response was, believe in the Lord Jesus. You and your household will get out of this mess. Wright continues on in saying that we're assume, when we read this through 21st century Christian eyes, we're assuming something that's going on that's not actually going on. So he continues on, he says this, um, and I'm going to quote him. He says, rather the Christian worldview sees the entire mess that the world is in, from the global facts of human rebellion, idolatry, and sin, the corruption of human life and relationships, the pollution of our planet, the worldwide system of economic exploitation, and so on, right through this messy situation here and now, this sudden crisis, this person is in desperate need or sorrow or fear. And this person, the jailer, whose own deliberate sin has raised a dark barrier between themselves and God, the Christian worldview sees all of this under the heading of the way the current world is, or the world is currently, as opposed to the way the world will be when Jesus is reigning as Lord. So the world sees it as, I'm in a mess because this is how the world works. And the world works like they're going to kill me and I'm terrified. And what Paul and his missionary team offer him is to see the world through the lens as though Jesus is already reigning as the Lord. But this reign, the reason why they're on a missionary journey, must be spread throughout for, uh, humankind in order for us to acknowledge the lordship of Jesus. This is why believe in the Lord Jesus is always the answer to the question of how to be rescued at whatever level and whatever sense. So like what Mrs. Mary said this morning, the key is believe in the Lord Jesus. And it's the answer to th the three people who were stuck, the three people who are in messes, how do we get out of this mess? And what we're learning is that that's also the answer to the mess that we're in. 
Whether you're the enslaved prophetess that we saw earlier, or you're the actual enslavers, they're all in a mess. And the answer to their mess is believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what the offer is. It's a different way to see the world. Whether you're the jailer or the magistrates that put him in jail, or you're the Lydia, the answer to the question of what must we do to get out of this mess because everything's a mess and we don't know what to do about it, the mess of your life, the confusion in your life, the brokenness in your relationships, the brokenness in your business dealings, the answer to the question of what must we do to get out of this mess, how do we repair this, is believe in the Lord Jesus. That's what the answer is. To the person on Facebook Marketplace who scammed you, right? The other side of a bad business deal. The friend or the family member who is unfair to you. The oppressive boss or the lazy worker. I don't know if you're starting to feel that, but that's your day-to-day, I bet. The gun owner or the victim of gun violence. The politician who uses both sides for their personal agenda. Such a mess. Are there some people who we claim to love, but our relationship is really just a mutually beneficial transaction? This week, believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be rescued from the challenges of that dynamic. Are you wrestling with that? The answer is believe in the Lord Jesus. And you'll be rescued from that dynamic because you'll see the world a different way and you'll see the person a different way. And the promise is also that what Jesus does with and through that is he brings you to other people to rescue the world around us, right? It's the promise that the kingdom is. We're going to pray and then we're going to sing a couple more songs together as a church. Uh, Lord, sometimes when, when there's a gut check like this in the text, it's, um, it's super easy to think of other people that might have this problem. And it's by the power and also by the grace and the illumination of your Holy Spirit that we can see for ourselves where we're the ones in the wrong. And we're only rescued by believing in you when we can see clearly the mess of our own life the ways we take advantage of people and manipulate people for our own causes and purpose, the control that we want to have on people or treating people because they benefit us in some kind of way differently than if they no longer did. And we need to look within and we need to see that mess. And the answer to the question of how do we get out of this mess is believing in you, trusting that you are the Lord, that the kingdom is here, and if we follow in your ways those kinds of things will work themselves out by the power of your Holy Spirit. I do ask that this church today, coming from here, including myself, that we can identify even just one relationship in which we have been treating a particular way, whether we're treating them out of a fake love that's based on a benefit we're getting from them, or we're mistreating them because of a benefit lost At some point in the near past, I do pray, Holy Spirit, that you challenge us in that. You show us how you think of that person, whether it's a pastor on Marketplace, it's an employee of ours, it's a family member who backstabbed us. I don't know what it is, God. But I pray that we can see that, and this week we can live in the reality of your kingdom. We can be the people who are willing to say, you are the Lord, and we believe in you. And therefore, we're going to see these situations through your lens and not our own lens. Help us with that, Holy Spirit, because we need your help with that. Amen.